Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show, Emasculation. It's the 1968 Zookeeper's Nightmare, Planet of the Apes. Discover Planet of the Apes, a civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. Tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation, to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death. Man, Andy! The MPAA in 1968, that's when you want to be making movies. <laughs> this movie got a rated G. How did they figure that? <laughs> Isn't that great? Those were oh, the days. Those were the, the halcyon days, Andrew. Indeed, indeed. I don't think that it really was just kicking in around here, because yeah. I think um, uh, 2001 also got a G rating. This is this will be yes, interesting. Bananas. We should as we go through these films from 1968, we should <laughs> we should see, you know, where is the line? What film 
if any, ends up crossing that line. Crossing the line to G because it was it was because PG didn't exist, right? I don't think PG came around for a while uh, after that. I don't know because G wasn't for kids. G was general audiences, right? And true to form, these films are for general audiences. In 1968 through 1970, they had G. They had M for mature audiences, parental discretion advised. Okay. R, restricted, no one under 16 admitted unless with a parent or adult guardian. And X, you cannot get in under 16. There you go. So this movie was was general audiences. Yeah. So kids were, mm. were it was fine showing kids, um, you know, people getting shot. I mean, I guess if you look at it now, it's pretty much the same, except I think that back then, if somebody gets <laughs> shot, you could show blood. Now- People can get shot, but you can't show blood in a G-rated film. I'm, I'm sure glad we solved that. Oh, actually, and according to this, only films that premiered in the U.S. after November 1st, 1968 had to carry the ratings. This one was before uh, November. It was. Wasn't it Easter, right? Uh, February. It was before Easter. All right. Well, we've got lots to talk about uh, Planet of the Apes. Uh, and and uh, so I would like to say it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. So long, in fact, that I had forgotten that there were some major themes in this movie completely. Uh, just completely. I, I, in fact, it would have been hard for me to tell you what the movie was uh, about. Uh, it had been so long since I've, I've actually watched this movie and paid close attention to it. And watching it closely, it's a different movie than I remember. How did it hit you? Well, this is um, one of my favorite science fiction films. I, I've always loved this film. It's a film that I've seen many times. Um, my favorite screening of it actually would be a really horrible, scratchy 35 millimeter print at a new theater here in the Valley that had just opened up. And, you know, sometimes movie theaters will do special events when they open sure. and they had Charlton Heston out and he, um, and they played in every screen or at least most of the screens on the, on the complex, a different Charlton Heston movie. And I, um, dragged my wife and uh, friend to see this. And he came only to about five films. Did he actually come and do an introduction? And this was one of them because as he said, it was one that he's most proud of, despite the fact that the print was in terrible shape, but it was so exciting to see it on the big screen regardless. And, uh, that was fun. It's just been a film that's always stuck with me. I saw it, um, at a young age when they showed it, you know, a kind of an apes weekend and you just watch the apes movies all weekend. And so I've seen this many times and I've always loved it. Um, it's one that I think that it definitely has a lot of those themes, but I don't think you necessarily need to walk out, um, thinking about all those themes. I mean, it's kind of a take it or leave it sort of thing, which I think is something that science fiction does really well. And we'll certainly talk about that a little more as far as, how the script was developed and Rod Serling's involvement and everything. But um, yeah, it's a film I love and I just loved it as much this time. Well, in, in what I hope will come as a relief to you, uh, I also enjoy this film. I don't think I love it as much as you do, but I, I, I really enjoy it and, uh, and enjoy my time with it. Although it's interesting, I watched it with my daughter and her reaction, I think about two thirds of the way through, she said, this is, this is a, a different kind of boring movie. It's, it's a boring movie that I can't quite look away from. <laughs> Which I thought, I, I guess that's high praise. I don't know. 
if that's high praise. But uh, I, I thought it was an interesting response. Uh, it, it is a movie that I enjoy, but I think it's a movie that we know too much as sophisticated movie-going audiences now 50 years later. And it's so easy, if you go in with the wrong eye, to just start picking it apart. Things like, thank God we've stopped smoking cigars in the cockpits of our spacecraft. That's one of those Speak things for that I'm glad we've, we've moved on. <laughs> And and cryo sleep, you know the cryo sleep concept, putting the people in the drawers and and are you uh, saying that's that's I, out of date, and not used anymore? Because we no, just saw that just tell in, you. in Alien Covenant. No, no, no. I'm not saying cryo sleep is out of date. I'm saying they have these cryo sleep chambers, and the little drawers open up if the ship detects a problem, unless it's the lady astronaut, in which case she gets to just atrophy over <laughs> years, right? I just, I like, I, I feel like uh, uh, there are some things that uh, that I, I had had trouble with. Uh, so, you know, and that's that's not all. I mean, the fact that these guys land on this planet. And there is zero sense that it, anything looks familiar. Like none of these guys in their childhoods, in their youth, had ever visited the Grand Canyon. Like nothing looked familiar as they're paddling down the river. <laughs> they didn't. They're astronauts, and they didn't notice any familiarity in the path of the sun <laughs> over their heads. I. I found that this time I I know I was walking uh, watching uh, too closely for those kinds of things. I, I found they bugged me. I, I I have a problem that you have a problem with that point <laughs> because it's like I mean if you're if you're going to be landing on an inhabitable inhabitable planet, you can't expect them all to be Star Wars planets where you know this one's all ice and this one's all this and this one's all that. I mean I think in general there's going to be a lot of similarities with planets. And you know a can a canyon is a canyon. I think I think a lot of people you'd you'd put them in, and technically it's not the Grand Canyon that they're in. It's you know they're at the um, the Horseshoe it's Bend, like Glen Canyon Horseshoe or Bend, something. Horseshoe nearby. Bend, right, right, right. Um, yeah. But you put them in a canyon, and I mean, if if I dropped you in a canyon on this planet, you know, you'd have a hard time saying, oh, that's Horseshoe Bend versus oh, that's uh, that's this canyon in Turkey versus oh, that's this canyon in Australia. Like it, it's going to be hard to pinpoint. I think there's enough variety and similarity across the entirety of the planet that and i assume that we would think that if it's a habitable planet elsewhere in the universe it's going to have some similarities anyway because it's an environment that we can actually live in okay let's just say i give you all of that benefit of the doubt all of it then we meet the human natives and this is not a movie that that trucks like Star Trek, like Star Trek, we expect everybody who on, uh, you know, everybody they come up with to be, you know, humanoid with some different makeup on. But there was no sense that this was familiar. And so I, I say this is I don't have a problem with the fact that uh, uh, that he didn't recognize that he was in an earthly canyon or that he didn't see the natives and say, hmm, that not. They're mostly more or less human. No, they're human. They're human people, and there's something strange about our scenario. They they never thought anything about it, that there's something strange with their scenario, and that's the problem I have with this. It's a story problem that I I think uh, in service of the big reveal at the end, I think they paid too much service to that big reveal, and they made they left some sort of ridiculous 
logical hoops open in the open in the beginning of the movie. So I, I don't I, I think that's a stretch to say that, though, because they are not I mean, they're heading away from Earth, right? Their ship just happens to break and something goes awry and it, it circles back and they end up at Earth. But in no sense were they ever expecting that they would ba- basically have gone in a big loop. They were expecting to go in a straight Their line. ship just decide. Why does it decide to return home? They're astronauts on a ship. And why wouldn't wouldn't they know that there's some sort of a rescue loop in the programming? They're all they're all <laughs> sleeping. The sh- it's it's like Hal is in control of this ship and does silly things while they're gone or while they're sleeping. Right. And you know what Bowman would have said? Bowman would have been in there and Bowman would have sat down and he'd say, hmm, there is a, there is some uh, there there's some programming. Uh, there's the phone home uh, program uh, that when there's a problem, <laughs> the ship does come home. Maybe that's why on, they the, got a on call this from crazy e. familiar planet that looks like my house should be around the corner. Just saying. Also, it's, I recognize it's like 2000 years later and the planet may have changed. That's it is clearly changed. So I totally get that, too. I'm just saying it bugged me. I I think that you're making it into a conceit that you're you're just you're you're having a hard time buying into the general conceit of the story. And if you can't buy into that, then you're lost. I mean, you know, there are certain plot elements that when it comes to a story, no, it's no, like no, you got to buy into it I don't think to really fair. see it. I don't think it's fair, I and think I don't it's think true. it's true, because I do, en- and I think and it I works do in enjoy this, this movie, and I still have trouble with this conceit, and it's a conceit I don't have a problem with in the reboot, uh, because I think they fixed it. They they fixed the challenge with the, uh, you know, with creating a planet of apes, and uh, in, in the narrative, in the new trilogy, and I don't have any problem with it here. There. I do have a problem with it here but i still enjoy the movie i am andy i am not lost it's what's interesting is that the new trilogy and these are all the same thing and at the beginning of or early on in rise of the planet of the apes they actually talk about the spaceship that just took off so technically you know it's it's happened um i you know i don't know i i guess i feel that it it works well enough and I think in context of the way that the story is designed, I think it actually is, is it's, it's fine. It's not something that's ever bugged me, but I guess if it's something that's going to bug you, it'll just, it'll eat at you. I do know that, you know, the original book by Pierre Boulle, it's, it's a bit different in the fact that, um, it, my recollection, it's been a while since I've read it, but my recollection is it is an actual planet of apes. It's not going back to earth. And at the and basically it is like these these travelers in a spaceship, they find this journal in space, I think, and they get out and they're reading it. It's the Chronicles of Taylor and they're reading the story going, oh, my God, this is crazy. And, and they go through this whole story of him. It's a totally different society. It's a very technically advanced society of apes. And um, and he is uh, kind of talking about all this and he escapes and everything. And they're reading this journal because I can't remember how it ends. I think he might escape with with uh, Nova and, you know, sends this, you know, this journal out hoping someone will find it basically. And these these people find it and they're reading it and they go, oh, this is crazy. This will never this has to be a joke. And then it's revealed. They the big twist at the end of this, the book is that these people who have found it are actually apes and they're reading this. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is just this is science fiction. <laughs> I've never read the book. And that's that's kind amazing. Of it's it's actually a great read, um, but that's basically how that goes. And I think, um, you know, Rod Serling, who they brought on to do the uh, the initial drafts of the script, 
with with the Twilight Zone, he really kind of found ways to write stories that had social commentary uh, built in, and they used science fiction um, to kind of take that and 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 say things that they couldn't say otherwise about society, and do it in the context of these stories and get their messages across. And I think that's exactly what he was doing here. And when he came up with that ending. Um, it was really a commentary on where society was going with war and with, uh, you know, nuclear arms and all of that sort of stuff. Stuff. And so, yes, it might be a conceit in in the beginning, and maybe it could have been structured a little stronger. But I don't know. I guess for me, it's it's never been a problem. It's it's something that I think works in context of this world that they've ended up creating, and the fact that it's looped around. Um, instead of going in a straight line, I guess I just never. Well, I, uh, and I have zero problem with the fact that it's looped around. And the, I think it is it, ultimately, even as I have trouble with the beginning, I, I, the payoff at the end of the film on the beach is worth it. And it still hits me sideways. And uh, I knew it was coming and I've seen it in clips countless times. And uh, I, I still feel like that was, that was the rewarding. And I, I believe that's a Serling thing. Like I know that was, uh, that was his uh, twist at the end that survived rewrites uh, after his initial stab at it. So, um, you know, that that felt very Twilight Zone. You know, that's a, a substantially Twilight Zone sort of ending. So I, I liked it a lot. I think the idea that he is trying to to uh, insert these, you know, social commentary into the narrative subtly is a remarkable understatement. Well, it's funny. Um I, I think that it's it's one of those things that if you're looking for it, it's there. I think there are people who watch projects like this and just – especially like young people. Like I watched this yeah. a million times as a kid and I Not never thought all. about any of this stuff. I never thought about the religious commentaries or the social class or the, or the politics. That's stuff that I got as I got older. But it's funny because listening to them talk about it, the writers and some of the people are saying, oh, yeah, we totally were putting all this stuff in there. We never really talked to each other about it, but we could tell it was all there. We were developing it and stuff. And then you listen to Richard Zanuck, who we've (laughs) done a whole series on him. And he's just like, oh, I just thought it was a fun movie. I don't think we were trying to put any any comments on society in there. (laughs) And I don't know if he's just – being coy because he he's he doesn't want to sound like you know his studio was putting out these big message movies or something or secret message movies especially that there was a blacklisted or formerly blacklisted screenwriter uh, michael wilson right. involved in this um or if he's just if he really was just clueless and he's he was elite enough to just really kind of not ever really have to worry about paying attention to things like that <laughs> I really couldn't read him. It was really funny. Well, I I think that that's where that's where this thing gets interesting. First of all, I mean, we get to the to the the chase and the catch, right? When uh, they they I, I, it, we sh- we should probably briefly talk about the whole idea of humans stealing their clothes while they're sleeping or while they're swimming, right? In the, in the it feels like I was watching a National Lampoon movie for a little bit, like a college sex movie. <laughs> oh, they're gonna steal their clothes, steal their clothes, and tear them up so they can't wear them, yeah, right? 
right? What a what a great prank on this alien planet that doesn't look familiar <laughs> at all. Uh, but then they they end up getting uh, captured, and this is where this is where things get interesting because it's it's where we see some really overt messaging in here that I think is uh, you know. Um, I, 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 super intentional. This whole idea of—I mean, it's the second we meet uh, the the minister of uh, science and find out his role as the the minister of whatever spirituality or the keeper of the scrolls uh, is the same role and the same ape. Uh, that's a statement. That's a statement on on where we've you know on on society on culture and uh, and it's an important one because depending on how you watch this movie um, it's it's pretty easy to see one message over the other are we making uh, sort of lampooning religion are we lampooning uh, those without faith and and uh, it, it's it, it's uh, it, it can be complicated absolutely and it's and it's tricky because. There's so much about evolution going on in the film that it's like, I mean, well, and it's tricky because it's like it's evolution, but at least according to this film, it's it's kind of caused by this nuclear waste that's happened to right. the world right now. I guess it gets more complicated as you go farther down the line and you get into the newest trilogy because then it's like there's this disease and this, you know, this this chemical that they were working on to kind of alleviate alzheimer's and it, it's much different it's not necessarily humans destroying themselves with nuclear weapons that kind of destroy one way or another we're going to destroy ourselves so, is the message <laughs> it's, yeah, it's right. inevitable we're just a bunch of idiots but there's obviously this whole evolution side of things and you know we devolve and the apes evolve and they become kind of the the ones running the planet and obviously right out of the gate with that that's kind of against anything in the bible because now you have have um humans um who really it's like you know we're the you know the uh, you know god created adam and even out of his own image etc cetera, etc cetera. obviously all of a sudden now it's all askew because now apes are running things and on top of that the apes have their own religion <laughs> and so it really it it kind of sets this whole thing up saying that you know these apes have created their own religion obviously it can't be true because we know where right. they came from um and so now all of that is kind of this fictional creation and now it i think that it's basically saying that religion is bunk and that uh you know this whole evolution thing is is working but it's 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 kind of a an interesting view uh, yeah. of all of it and but to a certain extent, it's a very science fiction. Right, view right. Of it's it. a it is a grand thought experiment, and and uh, you know I can certainly see the 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 perspective, and it's easier for me to see the the perspective of you know of the thought experiment than it is to to be sort of impacted by the you know testing of the religious waters because I it I very much see this as a history kind of repeats itself uh, sort of narrative that if we're not careful, look what we will do. Um, look what humanity will do to itself, and and so we have to be careful. It's as much of a of a of a statement on you know war and apocalypse, human centered apocalypse, as it is about you know apes gaining religious stature. Um, and and I think that's the part that's uh, for me that's the important part. Walking out of this movie, that's the thing that I find most interesting, and it's really cemented when he goes to the to the beach at the end. But uh, they they lay the groundwork so effectively throughout the course of the of the film that um, you know it's this is one of those movies I enjoy thinking about. 
Yeah, and and I think it's a very because of that it makes for just a really great science fiction film. It's saying a lot, yeah. but you can also just look at it on the surface as a really interesting science fiction film that is just really clever. It's, it and it's as much a story of authoritarianism too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a much of a, a, a story about the autocratic state and and what you can and cannot say, and that you have to you have to fear political will in this state because political will is a hammer and a spear. And uh, and that's not something that, uh, you know, they they put science on, um, you know, on on trial, uh, you know, as a result. And so um, I, I think this this could be very much as, you know, equally sort of anti-science as anti-religion insofar as it is anti-thought. Yeah. And, and to that end, I think it's as relevant today as it was 50 years ago. I do, too. I totally agree. And also, I, I think totally the social agree. class aspect of it is very interesting. You know, you have so? the three the three different distinct class of apes. You've got the gorillas, who are essentially kind of the menial laborers. You've got the kind of the, the middle class scientists, which are the chimpanzees. And then you have the upper class orangutans, um, you know, darker skinned are doing the more menial tasks and it, it gets more Aryan as you climb up. Mm-hmm. I think that was an interesting and intentional way that they kind of broke down society to kind of look at what was happening. Well, and the, and that the chimpanzees compared to the, the sort of brutal thumb ruling class, the chimpanzees are the smallest and the weakest, but they're the ones fostering sort of uh, intelligentsia. Exactly. I, we're going to see more of that, I think, in the next film, but we'll see protests, you know, <laughs> and so yeah, it's interesting how this kind of evolves over these next series of films. But and then I think it's also reflective of of just how they look at humans, and you have a lot of stuff. I mean, this came out in the late '60s, and there was a lot of commentary of Vietnam, and you had all this social strife going on in the United States. You had um, you know race riots and everything else happening, and here you have. You know, this man who's looked at that as as nothing and you have them blasting him with a hose, something that, you know, everybody will have seen on TV in this time. Um, And just it's so much stuff. It's like this. It's speaking to the people of the time. Absolutely. But as we just said, it very much is still very current. I think it is. And it it feels uh, perhaps more resonant today than it did 20 years ago, you know, the last time I watched it. And uh, uh, it's it's fascinating, uh, the echoes through history. How did they uh, how they end up getting this one made Uh, this? uh, And and I, I forget just what a contribution Rod Serling made. Yeah, I mean, he really uh, was the first one to take the crack at, at the script. I mean, this one really came into being really because of Arthur P. Jacobs, who was the producer on it. He had been, I think he had been like a, a, a PR guy or something for a lot of the stars. And then he wanted to get into producing. And I think when he was, I, I don't know if he was dating Marilyn Monroe or friends with her or something, but somehow they were developing a project together. And it was going to be a film of hers that, unfortunately, she died. Uh, it was called What a Way to Go, right when uh, it was supposed to go before the cameras. And so he ended up with Shirley MacLaine, and it was a success. But then he did Doctor Doolittle, which was a huge movie for 20th Century Fox. It just it it you know was it was right around the time 
at Fox when they were having a lot of their debacles. And we talked about a little bit of that back in our Xanax series. Cleopatra, Dr. Doolittle, a lot of these huge budget films just weren't bringing the money back in. And so he really, he had read this book. Uh, I can't remember if it was right after it was published or he read it before it got published, but he he read it as like, I want to make this, this, this looks interesting. There were some other producers who were interested in doing it, but they did really low budget schlock movies like Gorg or, you know, just really... <laughs> <laughs> really yeah, low budget right. movies that that people don't talk about too much anymore and he ended up finally getting it but this was one of those movies where if you were making movies with talking apes or ape monsters it was really kind of a b or maybe even c level type of movie just really low budget bad movies that nobody took seriously and he wanted to make it serious and that was a real trick and he he talked to a lot of different people about how to make this happen and nobody bought into it. Nobody at all. Until he finally talked to Zanuck. And, and he and Zanuck chatted about it. And Zanuck bought into it. But he agreed. He's like, we got to do this right. Because this is a tricky thing people aren't going to take seriously if we if we do it the wrong way. And again, it was happening at this time when, when the studio was losing money. They, they did some makeup tests. And that's really um, the thing that sold everybody on. We can do this. It can be serious. And, and, um, and it, people will buy off on it. It won't be complete nonsense. And so they made the makeup test and decided to move forward with it. Now they, they didn't have a huge budget, um, especially considering they, all the money that had been lost on some of those other ones. So they had to really scale it back. Like it was original, uh, originally scripted to be high tech societies, just like the book. They had to scale that back to kind of the more primitive societies that we have in the books. And so they had to find ways to kind of still cut and save wherever they could. But it, you know, they got everything together. And once they got Charlton Heston on board, um, originally they had Edward G. Robinson on board to play Dr. Zayas, but after the makeup test, he's just like, I can't do this. It's just too much for me. He was getting pretty old by then. Um, and then they got Rod Serling to do the original drafts of the script, um, and Franklin, uh, Schaffner to, to direct it. And once they had kind of that core group, it kind of, that was it. I mean, that's all they needed to get it going. Well, and some of those changes, I think, were really important, you know, not making it a uh, the, the super futuristic society, right? The Going back a little bit and and taking a step back in the, the production design, uh, giving us more of that sort of we're out of the caves, but not a, not that far, you know, still yeah. very much attached to the land. And th- that changes things. And it, it allows us, I think. Uh, once you get to that end and you start thinking about, you know, where we came from through the course of this movie, it allows you to see that this is a this is a reflection of us uh, because we were here. We, humanity, was here. We were making these same choices and these same cultural sort of organizational structures as as we, too, came out of the caves. And I, I really like that uh, that connection. One thing I will say, I, you know, Tim Burton did his remake with Zanuck, actually, in uh, 2001, which I was actually wondering if we were going to if that was going to end up in our Inevit- Inevitably, it's going to have to be. Um, <laughs> I really didn't like it. But I will say something I, I thought they actually got pretty, uh, pretty right was at least the way that the society worked. Like I felt like they were even more apish, the way that they would jump around and they would swing on things and and go yeah. Like the society wasn't just a flat kind of caveman primitive, you know, Flintstones esque type of place that they all lived. They actually had trees and there was like, you know, they, they would climb up these things and it actually felt much more like a futuristic society where apes developed like humans 
and it kind of created a society that they could live in. And that was an aspect of that film that I actually thought worked pretty nicely. Well, I do too, uh, though I, I don't want to say that too much in comparison to this movie because John Chambers' uh, makeup on this thing uh, was really, you know, I say for the time, but really stunning. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ape makeup and so uh i it's it, that they that they walk around is one thing but that they you know how they talk and how their faces move and how their eyes move and how these performers are able to still you know convey a sense of um you know of of wonder and anger and rage all through this massive amount of of you know prosthesis uh is is really magical and and that's that's a thing that sets this movie apart and also why uh, it, it was so important to get what budget they had and to keep what secrets they could keep because this would not have this would have been too easy a movie to laugh at had they not done it with this level of fidelity. Yeah, there's there's some great uh, footage of or it's, it's just interviews with uh, like uh, Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter talking about the faces that they had to make under all that makeup just to get little expressions you know right. because they had to like really scrunch their face up in in crazy looks in order to get like a little tiny ape smile and right so it looks really subtle but what's going on under the mask is a seizure right exactly <laughs> right and so it's but it's i i think that absolutely i i think that uh, you know chambers and the the ape makeup i mean it's just it's stunning what they do here and I think it's interesting that we've started our kind of whole 1968 uh, thing that we're doing here with the rest of the year with this following 2001, another film that had a lot of apes in it. And I think it's it certainly is worth talking about kind of the difference between the, the, the <laughs> apes in those two particular films, because, I mean, there's a huge difference in, in the apes, the kind of the primitive prehistoric apes that you have at the beginning of 2001 um, and the uh, these you know advanced uh, apes that have evolved to a point where they're walking and talking. Well, I know you have spent much more time thinking about those apes in particular uh, in two thousand one <laughs> than I have, and so I don't I don't want to spin us out of control. But they they made some very different choices to my eye, uh, where they took potentially some shortcuts around makeup and you know general design uh, character design of the apes. Uh, they, you know, sort of supplanted those choices with some really solid choices around how the apes moved and movement. And in Planet of the Apes, we get none of none of that. Right. It's it's all straight up humanoid movement. Well, I think that's absolutely the difference. Uh, you know, those apes in 2001 um, were very much designed to be very Andy Circus movement type of apes where they actually were supposed to be apes that you were never supposed to think that they were men in costumes. And um, whether it's the faces, which I think for the most part work pretty nicely, and they they actually are quite effective, um, or just the movement, I think it sells really incredibly on that. And uh, yes, I are you talking about two thousand two thousand one? Yeah, two thousand one. I think those apes. I think they do a great job making them seem like apes. You know, I, I it's it's the movement paired with the makeup. To- totally. And yeah, absolutely. I think it's a huge difference when you're looking at evolved apes that can talk and what um, what they do uh, in this particular film and all the work that Chambers and his team did to make these apes. It's just, it's it's a complete difference on, on that kind of the concept. But I think in both cases, they do great work. 
Well, I think they do. I just think it's funny that 1968 was, as you say, was a mark of essentially a race to get the the great ape films. Right? Yeah, forget about <laughs> the, the race were... to the moon. Yeah, right, right. It's <laughs> it's it's who's got the best uh, makeup. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about some stand up performances? Yeah, I think we should definitely kick it off with a uh, good old Chuck. I got you know we did that uh, we did that other Heston movie. Um, yeah, we did. Yeah, it was it Omega yeah, Man? It was like that. Yeah, as Omega Man. We did Omega Man. And I got I got in trouble because I said I didn't really like Charlton Heston. And a lot of people commented. We got a lot of YouTube comments on that one in particular about people who were like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Omega Man's amazing. And uh, we did. I think collectively we didn't we weren't crazy about Omega Man. Uh, but people wrote me and said, you don't know what you're talking about. Charlton Heston's a national treasure. He's a national treasure. I am not a fan of Charlton Heston generally. Uh, he's fine here, but I liked everybody else more. <laughs> Something about Charlton Heston and just his Charlton Hestonness that he really exhibits <laughs> very strongly in this film. I have, be- have become so drawn to it, and I don't think this film. Works. What is that about? I I think that it just it's it's this sense of like this <laughs> over the top manness that he exhibits. Uh, and I think it works really well in this film. And I just don't think the film would, would carry as strongly if he wasn't in it. I really think that he lends a lot to just, just the sense of the time and the sense of the film by, by kind of portraying this, this role. I mean, I, I think that it's, uh, it's great. And I think that I, I honestly haven't looked deep enough in his filmography, but I don't think that before this he was really doing anything that was. Oh, we also did Touch of Evil, where he played That's a Mexican. Right. <laughs> You're right. I, I don't think he had done much in the way of science fiction. I think he had done his big biblical epics and a, a wide variety of films, certainly. But I think this film kind of was the, is the film that kicked off a kind of a new era for him because aside from this and the sequel. Uh, which we'll talk about next week. He did the Omega Man, which we already mentioned. He did Soylent Green. Um, he did, you know, the airplane or airport movies. He did Earthquake. Um, you know, I, I think he was kind of getting into some of that uh, more fun stuff. And we didn't even mention he has a, uh, a small cameo in uh, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. That's right. That's right. That's true. I, I you know, he's fine. I, I, uh, I think there is a, a whole special episode where we attempt to examine a, your relationship to Charlton Heston's <laughs> manness. Uh, I'm going to let that go. Roddy McDowell as Cornelius would have been a different role with James Brolin in it. It really would have. Um, Roddy McDowell, I think, ended up becoming, um, to a certain extent, kind of the the core of this franchise. I mean, you know, he yeah. ends up in so many of the movies. And I think he just, he became um, uh, really attached. And because of that, I think, found kind of the, the core. I mean, he really kind of became the Andy Serkis of, the, of this early uh, five film franchise. I know he missed one of them. I think it was the second one that he ended up not being available for because he was directing right. his uh, first film. But, um, yeah, he just, he goes right back into escape conquest and, and battle. And, uh, and I, I think that, uh, without him and just the, the heart and the understanding of kind of that social, um, aspect of the story that they're, um, putting forward, um, I don't think it would be as strong. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he's just a, a wonderfully sort of sensitive 
uh, performer here, and and uh, which he is in all of his stuff, you know, from this all the way to Bugs Life, you know, he's just an incredible silky voice um and so it was great to see him here and and i look forward to watching him kind of evolve the character uh i i don't remember uh, what i thought actually of the actor who replaced him as cornelius in uh, in the second movie so that'll be interesting to see uh kim hunter as zira i mean her big thing is you know winning the oscar for a streetcar named desire she's the famous right. stella stella yes. yes yes she is stella I think that um, she is as much of the heart of this film, uh, these next three films, really, as Roddy McDowell is. I think she's great as Zira, and I, I think that just the kind of the the um, the attachment she gets to to this human um, is so touching. And uh, you know, from the beginning, I find her just uh, you know one of my favorite characters in the film, all the way up to the final moment when when he says, "I want to kiss you," and she's just like, "You're just so." ugly it's just it's so funny i just love those the the moments between these two characters i i think are just incredibly strong do you read anything about how that kiss was controversial i didn't i didn't either i just imagine that that was enormously controversial at the time (laughs) well (laughs) no i have nothing to say about it and no evidence but i can imagine there was a group or groups that were really upset about that Inevitably, somebody is going to be upset, yes. And if they weren't, then they shouldn't be upset about any other kisses that are <laughs> controversial. <laughs> right. Right? Absolutely. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, who, who else? What do you think of, uh, of Linda Harrison, who is the uh, future human equivalent of a Bond girl? Yeah, Linda Harrison got the role because she was dating uh, Dick Zanuck at the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> that's how these <laughs> things work sometimes you know i think that it works i think that she plays that kind of dumb kind of caveman stereotype quite well you know i, I think that she's fine you know i i, I don't I, I don't know i guess i don't think a whole lot of her and in, in context of of the actress but i i think that she you know works fine in the role she hasn't been in a bunch of stuff i mean it was like this and then you know some tv stuff and then cocoon she right. was in Cocoon, right. uh, which I think is delightful. Uh, you know, Wild Bill, and she had a cameo in the um, in the 2001 Apes as well. So, and of course, Maurice Evans as Doctor Zeus. Doctor Zeus. Doctor Zeus. Doctor Zeus. <laughs> He's the guy who is the keeper of the keys, uh, so to speak. He's the guy who knows everything about the the future, and this is or the future or the past. You know where the where the apes came from and how the apes. Uh, you know, came to their uh, prominence as the the prominent species on the planet after humans torched themselves. I think he's I I think Maurice Evans is really good at playing that line. I do too. I I I've always loved that character, and I I buy him. I think kind of I don't I don't know if it's just the kind of the. Um, the Shakespearean world that he came from as an actor that just kind of lends that kind of that grandiosity to him. Um, but I, I find that I just buy him uh, brilliantly as Dr. Zayas. Yeah. You know, I think it's really important to note just how the, the like he's the guy where everything or he's the ape. Everything could fall apart in this movie if you don't buy him, I think, because um, you end up having to to believe that he is operating with authenticity 
whether he's working with the science community or the legal community, right, the political community, uh, or in honoring his role as the keeper of the scrolls. And I think he even when they go to the cave, you know, up to the moment where they they tilt the doll and you hear Mama, the human doll, have a, have this 2,000-year-old voice that that's uh, uh, there. I, I think you, you have him as it, he is a reticent but authentic player in the investigation. Um, and and I think that's important because and I, I think he does that really well because I this this would be a great sequence to just laugh at because it's so silly if you don't buy, you know, his piece of it. Yeah, it's that it's that kind of uh, you know government cover up that I think he plays so nicely with all of that you know where he's he's hiding the truth, and I've just always liked that he kind of knows so much more that he's just not telling anybody. I'm really glad it didn't end up as Edward G. Robinson. That would have been a different and I think disappointing cast casting. It would have. And I'm glad they worked on the makeup more too, because that original yeah. makeup test, while it convinced them to fund rough. it, boy, was it rough. <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about James Whitmore, president of the assembly? You know, I, I didn't really have much to say about uh, the role or anything. Just the fact that James Whitmore is in it excites me so much. I, I love him as an actor. I haven't seen him in a ton, but uh, obviously he's great in Shawshank Redemption as Brooks. And uh, jumping back, uh, you know, 14 years before this, you know, he was the police sergeant in Them, the giant ant movie, which That's I right. just always loved. That's so good. So. I I just have two bits of casting I wanted to to uh, yeah. point out. the The first is uh, that of Jerry Marin, uh, who played a very young child ape. He was uncredited. We've talked about Jerry as one of the Munchkins, uh, and he just passed away in May of this year. Yes, he did. Um, I th- was yeah. he the last one? I know there were only a I, few left. I think he was. I think he was, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and then last was Diane Stanley, and I only bring Diane Stanley up because she played Astronaut Stewart. Uh, she was uncredited. Now, Astronaut Stewart, Andy, you may note, is the shrunken dead woman in yeah. the capsule that misfired. We see her before uh, she's dead. We see her. Do we see her yeah. before she's dead? Yeah. I was I not paying attention? You were because not paying attention. I thought she was a prop. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny? I thought that makeup is amazing. They actually also did like press photos where it's the four astronauts all standing around together. I'm like, why, <laughs> why are they even doing this? <laughs> You want to, you know, it's like you you feel like if there's a director's cut, there's a director's cut with like 30 minutes of, of astronaut Stewart kind of prepping the <laughs> ship. <laughs> oh, my uh, camera to Leon Shamroy, uh, cinematographer. Uh, and I, I think the camera actually works really well here. And even in the stuff that I don't. I don't particularly, uh, you know, that that I think is crazy on the narrative side. Uh, the presentation of it is great, and the first twenty minutes of you know the tour of the planet uh, that we call home is, I, I think, wonderful. And uh, you know, I love how the camera moves, and I love how it tracks. Uh, you know, there's a scene, uh, you know, the chase scene where Heston is escapes and he's running through the the little village and. And uh, I, 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 the tracking is great. I always know where I am. I'm firmly in place. Uh, it was great. I love the shot during the chase where he like Ch- Heston runs past and the camera like flips up and goes upside down as it watches him run by you. And then it ends up upside totally. down as he's watching running away. Oh, it's great. It's great. And and then the the uh, uh, miniature work at the end, of course, is just a stunning reveal through the the crown. Uh, of Lady Liberty, which was a, a great setup. Miniature too, work. So. 
Yeah, well, yeah, it was a large. Did you, yeah, they built miniature. like this huge thing on top of this giant. Uh, it was a huge thing, but it was a one. It was half scale. Half scale. Si- half scale. Yeah, it's still yeah, pretty it's big. Really miniature. <laughs> yes, it's, it's miniature. Consider <laughs> compared to the original. Compared but... to everything's relative, dude. <laughs> everything's relative. I know. I I thought the Were camera gonna... work was great. I, in fact, uh, something that really stood out to me this time that I had forgotten about was just how much I love the ship crash scene and and i thought that was such a creative way to do it on the cheap where it's like the ship pov as it's careening toward earth and you just get these great shots mm-hmm. over landscapes kind of tumbling over the land and stuff and then and then crashing into the water before you pull out and i was like god that's just it's really clever and it's a fun way to do all of that without having to deal with you know the big ship and all that sort of stuff so i i thought it was incredibly effective uh this was filmed in andy's backyard arizona it, some of it was, yes. Um, all of the opening around uh, Lake Powell, like we said, the the Horseshoe Bend uh, area and um, uh, Glen Canyon up around Utah. There's just a lot of beautiful areas um, that are just great spots for filming this. Um, and uh, they they found some great stretches. But I think all of it, the, the bulk of the movie was filmed up at Malibu Creek State Park, which actually used to be part of 20th Century Fox's um, Fox Ranch. And I, I didn't find this information, but I'm wondering if the sale of this ranch back to the state was part of this whole debacle that they were going through in the late 60s when they were losing all their money and they had to get rid of things. Um, but anyway, Malibu Creek State Park um, was part of uh, the movie ranch. They filmed all of the Ape City there. They filmed the the crops when they were um, getting caught. They filmed the la- beating, lagoon. Beating the corn. Beating the corn. They filmed the lagoon, <laughs> which they built that lagoon for um, a different movie. What was that movie that they built that for? Um, I'll have to see if I can find that in my notes. But um, um yeah, I'll see if I can track it down. But um, and then a lot of it out at the uh, all the stuff at the end was out at the the Point Dooms Beach on Malibu Malibu Coast, and um, and then yeah, the the whole thing with the Statue of Liberty. I mean, they they did build those parts to shoot past, but otherwise it's just a map painting, which I find really impressive still to this day. We we have to talk a bit about uh, one of your favorite Jays uh, of music, yes. Jerry Jerry Goldsmith. And his crazy 12-tone score. It's a wacky score. It's got crazy instruments. He When he first talked, this is, I think, his second of seven films that he did with Schaffner. Um, and this one, he, he talked to him and he said when they would, they would converse about kind of the, the, what the direction of the score they wanted, he would just say a few things and Schaffner would say, that sounds good. And then he would never want to hear it until it was done in time to actually do the music. Like he never wanted to listen, which I think is really funny, but that's kind of how Schaffner worked. And, uh, and so, uh, so, but he's, he told him his note was, I, I, I want to avoid electronics for this. This was right when that electronic score was kind of coming in. And, uh, I want to try just finding some more interesting sounds. And Schaffner was like, that sounds great. And that was like his only note to him, uh, for the whole thing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean that he did things like, um, mixing bowls where they were hitting mixing bowls. He did Ram's horn, um, all sorts of interesting instruments to kind of create these tones. I can't remember what the name of the instrument was. Some Brazilian, Brazilian instrument that they actually used that kind of creates, um, ape tones. So it's just, it's so fascinating to me, the work that, uh, that they came up with to kind of create, 
this score that really feels completely otherworldly. It, it really does. It does not feel to me like a Jerry Goldsmith score. And uh, that's it. it it's, I would not be able to pick this out as one of his, uh, but it really works with the film. It's not that listenable. Uh, so it, it's not one that I want to just kind of close my eyes and relax to, but, but it does work for the village. Uh, yeah. I mean, speak for yourself. I love listening to it, but <laughs> I think it's just a fascinating. Uh, I like to do it like in the car and then sometimes I'll just lean my head out and close my head in the car door real hard a few times. Uh, it makes me feel like I'm really in the place. It, yes, it does. It makes you feel like you're there. It was the Brazilian Kuka that they used to recreate the ape vocalizations. Kind of I've never even music. heard of the Kuka. I haven't either. I don't even know if I'm saying it right or spelling it right, but that's that's what they said. Now it's all I want. I oh, and by the, uh, way, the, talk- by the way, the swimming hole that they are yeah. all skinny dipping in, that was actually created for Dr. Doolittle, which actually just had come out the year oh, before. Oh, there you go. Uh, we talk about sequels and remakes. Andy... There are a couple. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about uh, four of them as part of this series. Um, but it did have two TV series. It had uh, the remake. It had the reboot series. Plus, there were comics. There have been books. I mean, it's a film that uh, hit a the culture and had a real resonance. And it's something that has been, um, you know, it's, I think it still is something that is, is relevant. And that's why people keep... Uh, you know, redoing stuff with it. And now Disney owns it. So you can be sure that there will be more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as much as fun as we had watching it, did, did uh, the uh, awards uh, crews give it any attention? You know, it had a little bit of love, uh, five wins, uh, three other nominations. A lot of those wins were for recent sorts of things, you know, and those retrospective sorts of things. But for the Oscars, um, it was it did win a special award for John Chambers for his outstanding makeup achievement in the movie. And then it was nominated for two others, costume design, but it lost to Romeo and Juliet and original score for Goldsmith, but it lost to The Lion in Winter for John Barry. So another of the J's, though. And how did it do at the box office? Well, Zanuck and company doled out $5.8 million to make this film, um, which is low considering all the big debacles that they had with some of their other films. But, uh, you know, for the time, it was, uh, it, was, it was a good budget for a low-budget sci-fi movie. And that's about $40.1 million in today's dollars. After these other bigger debacles, it was a gamble, but still, it paid off. The movie was released February 8th, 1968, and became a huge success, raking in $33.4 million, or $231 million in today's dollars. That gave the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.7 million, and made it the third highest grossing film of the year behind 2001 and Hello, Dolly. Man, that's a trio you'd want to see back to back. Uh, this was a, uh, a a super fun watch, uh, even if it was the special kind of boring that you don't want to look away from. Uh, and I think it's time, Andy, for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com uh, slash the next reel. You'll see our list of movies, all the movies we've talked about on this show. Swipe over in the show notes, tap flickchart, and it'll take you straight to this film. And you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. All right. First up, we have Planet of the Apes or Fat City. Oh, I'm going to go Planet of the Apes on this one. Apes for me. Planet of the Apes or Predestination. Planet of the Apes for me. Really? This is one huh. of my... Yeah, this is way high for me. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to uh, go to the mat on this one. Are you ready? I'm ready. One, one two, two, three. three paper. 
I don't like this game anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All my 1968 films are getting way too low because of you. Exceptional uh, skill at this completely random game. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Planet of the Apes or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Apes for me. Uh, I'll give you apes. Planet of the Apes or the Outlaw, Josie Wales. Apes for me. Apes for me. Planet of the Apes or The Great Escape. Apes for me. Oh, Andy. Sweet Andy. Great Escape. One? It is the, the, it is the Great Escape. <laughs> the correct answer is Great Escape. Okay, and you're wrong. And you're wrong. Uh-huh. All right. <laughs> One, One, two, two three. three. Rock. Okay. Principal lost. Planet of the Apes or Scarlet Street? Apes for me. Um, Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes or Fargo? Fargo. Apes. Wow. Okay, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. Paper. <laughs> You're so gentle. <laughs> gentle with my rock. Well, that lands Planet <laughs> of the Apes at 97 on our flick chart. 97 out of 364. So at least... So it breaks the top 100. Yep. That's something. It did. Yep. Right? We've had we've had worse recently. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Bring that up. We've had bigger battles. <laughs> I I am assuming that this uh this is a a significant enough movie that it's it's going to land you a five star over on letterbox.com slash the next reel. Am I right? Yeah, this is absolutely a, a five star plus a like for me. Uh it's always been one of my favorites. Um so yeah. It actually climbs for me on this viewing to a four star. I, I have just enough trouble in the beginning and I'm just not a fan of Heston. And all of those things uh, are all wrapped up in that one star as it shrivels away and dies. And uh, so it's a four star and a like for me. I really enjoy thinking about it. I, I enjoy the message. Uh, I enjoy puzzling through the intention. And I very much look forward to the next four films to see if they have just as much to think about. I, I I love the way that you made that loss of a star sound like an absolutely painful experience. <laughs> as oh, it shriveled and died. As it shrivels and dies. <laughs> my, my. Yeah, that's important. So wh- uh, where do we go from here? I, I think because the movies don't have any numbers in the titles, uh, how do you even know which one's next, Andy? You got to do research. You got to do research. This is back in the day. Uh, well, and this film is really kind of the one that kicked off. I mean, there were there were series that had like kind of the, the, the franchises where you had um, the serial type of sequels. But this really did kick off kind of the, the science fiction sequel and the, that whole idea uh, really stemmed from here. Um, uh, it goes to beneath the Planet of the Apes next in 1970. That's where we will be going next week. So we're on the Planet of the Apes, but now we're going to go beneath it. Beneath it. What lies below, Andy? I can't wait. And if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. 
You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running our Instagram, Ben Lott running all things on Twitter, and thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song, Ragtime Instrumental, as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Do you know what? This time, Amazon didn't really. No, Amazon didn't. <sighs> they were Poor either branding. really long. Yeah. Or lame. I totally were The ones that were long, there were people who were impacted by the movie. That's <sighs> true. I get it. Yes. Uh, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with a one star. And that's from, do it. Uh, the good James, who says that he couldn't keep watching. He just couldn't keep watching. Plotline, ridiculous. Acting, wooden. Motivations of characters, kindergarten level. I watched for 30 minutes because I thought I had to know what people saw in this movie. I finally couldn't stand it any longer. Maybe the good points of the movie come up at the end. Well, oh, that, no. yeah, I mean, yeah, kind of missed the, missed the big reveal, buddy. Sorry about that. 30 minutes. What's even going on at 30 minutes? They're swimming, probably. They're looking at the footprints. <laughs> That's about it. That's about it. Yeah. No, it's, it, it, well, it's interesting because, I mean, you really have to just buy into this exploration of the landscape, and some people just don't, I guess. Some people, Andy. Where did you end up? Did you find anything? I got a, I got a three star. I, the, the one, two stars otherwise kind of stunk. So I got a three star um, that, uh, it says the future. This is by D Glazier 55 overacting by the revered Charlton Heston in the beginning, though no one else could show with such convincing the last scene story was good. Oh. <laughs> that so was it. That was the end. That's it. You know, I, I, I think to that end, I will say yeah. something we didn't talk about with Heston is, I mean, it is just very Heston and the we Heston didn't talk- screams. What? The Heston screams. Everything. You damn dirty apes! We didn't talk <laughs> you, about that, that. that famous line. It's a madhouse. A mad. And of course, the, we didn't talk about the fantastic um, when he's talking to Nova. Did I tell you about Stuart? Now there was a lovely girl, <laughs> the most precious cargo we'd brought along. She was to be the new Eve, with our hot and eager help, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my she, goodness. She was a ripe breed. <laughs> Probably just as well. She didn't make it this far. Oh, my God. It was awful. Oh, dear. Okay, so there's definitely some things that are uh, of of the time. Of the time. Did, of the didn't time. didn't work. All right. Well, thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, 
Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season eight, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I hope it's harder than season seven was. Okay, first up, the Odyssey films. <laughs> Easy. 2001, 2010. Okay, Planet of the Apes. Oh my goodness. Planet of the Apes. Great book. <laughs> 1968 Best Picture nominees. Uh, okay, well, The Line of Winter. Oliver, uh, from Oliver Twist, Romeo and Juliet, of course. Um, was Rachel Rachel based on a book? It was Margaret Lawrence's A Jest of God, also on Audible. Awesome. Yeah, we have covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. And Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, both of which were part of our Ingrid Bergman series. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 